Meteor Men of Mars by Harry Cord and Otis Adelbert Klein from Planet Stories Winter 1942. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman. Like tiny meteors, the spaceships plunged into Earth's atmosphere, carrying death for all who opposed their flight. The fate of the world rested in Hammond's hands, and his wrists were fettered at his sides. Meteor Men from Mars by Harry Cord and Otis Adelbert Klein It came out of the dawn sky slanting like a fiery meteor out of the east the two men in the skiff saw the glowing streak in the sky and heard the sound of its passage like the loosing of a nest of angry snakes overhead a scant second before it plummeted into the calm waters of the sound a geyser of water and steam shot up not a hundred yards from the maroon and gold skiff the boat rocked and pitched to the disturbance Frank Hammond, seated at the bow, clamped a taped hand over the side to hold himself, surprise quickening the intentness of his dark, handsome face. He was a lithe, bronzed figure, clad only in blue trunks and rope sandals, stroking for his college crew in years that were warm memories had padded naturally wide shoulders. "'What the devil!' he ejaculated. "'Did you see that, Pete?' Pete Storm grinned. Two inches under his companion's six-foot length, he weighed ten pounds more, a heavily muscled figure who could move with deceptive speed, as many in the opposing eleven had found out in his college football days. Blonde, phlegmatic of nature, he took things easier than his more restless friend. Meteor, you dummocks, he jibed good-naturedly. Ever heard of one before? Hammond stared at the spot where the agitation was quieting. I've heard of them, he said shortly, but this is the first time one ever fell this close to me. Storm shrugged. Forget it. This is our last day before going back to the grind. Let's make the most of it. Remember the bet we— Boy! He broke off, standing up to haul in. His catch proved to be a bluefish, a three-pounder. He unhooked it disgustedly, while Frank, measuring it with a quick glance, gave him a Bronx cheer. If you can't do better than that, the new hat's in the bag, he jeered. They went back to their heaving and hauling, bantering good-naturedly over every catch, completely forgetting the strange visitor from the skies both were research chemists for the new york analytical laboratories both were unmarried they had been inseparable comrades since their college days when both wore identical crew cuts dressed alike and always either double dated or stagged it in memory of those days their skiff the crawfish had been painted maroon inside and the golden yellow outside maroon and gold having been their school colors their vacation camp was on ramson's island just off ramson's point on the connecticut shore 
the rocky island was uninhabited they had left camp early intent on making the most of their last day reaching the fishing hole they had anchored both men taped their hands and each prepared his jig a long bar of lead to which a hook had been attached and began the process of heaving and hauling used in the vicinity of luring bluefish they had been at it for about an hour when the meteor landed fifteen minutes later they had forgotten it the sun was a huge red ball balanced on the rim of the sea when frank suddenly felt a jerk on his line that nearly wrenched his arm from its socket he said nothing his lips merely tightened eagerly as he wished to surprise his companion by hauling in the big one unexpectedly but this proved harder than he thought his potential catch darted off with such a burst of speed and strength that it dragged boat anchor and all hey yelled storm clutching at the boat's sides to hold himself what's on that jig a shark better cut that line before it swamps us like heck i will hammond grunted hanging on to the line with both taped hands this must be the grandfather of all big blues that new hat's in the bag with both feet braced against the thwards he leaned back and pulled with all his strength bit by bit he hauled the big one in close till finally he was able to lift it out of the water and into the boat both men exclaimed in amazement at the thing which had come over the side and clanked to the bottom of the boat it was neither a giant bluefish nor a shark it was a shiny iridescent object slightly shaped like a shark but quiescent now and seemingly lifeless what kind of fish do you call that asked storm disgustedly leaping forward for a better view of the catch it looks like a cross between a shark and a toy submarine damn if it don't hammond replied staring bewilderedly at his catch the thing was about thirty inches in length with both vertical and dorsal fins but instead of one dorsal fin it was equipped with four fins placed equidistant around the body these fins contained tubular quills or spines with round openings at the ends and hammond's hook had caught between two of these spines it was as heavy as if made of steel but despite its weight and metallic sound when it struck it appeared to be constructed entirely a bluish iridescent mother-of-pearl hammond removed his hook from between the spines and lifted his catch into the empty boat seat between them better heave it overboard advised storm seriously it might be a newfangled type of mine or bomb i don't like the looks he stood open-mouthed as the thing suddenly shot off the boat seat with a hissing roar like that of a small rocket it scorched the paint as it took off with a small orange-green flame emanating from the tubular quills it shot upward with incredible speed and was almost immediately lost to view storm's mouth closed slowly hell he said a little dazed i'm afraid to start fishing again frank 
might catch a cross between a battleship and a whale i'm hauling up the anchor hammond countered grimly i don't like the looks of this at all the coast guard ought to hear of this he had one hand on the anchor rope and was starting to hoist it when the strange catch suddenly reappeared it came down in a long slant circled over the skiff a few times and finally settled on the scorched seat from which it had taken off hammond stared at the thing and swore peter storm took a firm hold on his oar holes suddenly appeared in the strange craft hammond noticed that there were no doors in evidence the holes seemed to dilate open like camera shutters in the gleaming body from these openings a host of small creatures crawled they swarmed out toward both ends of the boat seat storm straightened oar in hand ants he snapped disgustedly he began to swing the ash blade down on the scurrying creatures the things continued to move about apparently unharmed dents appeared in the oar and in the seat hammond bent over the scurrying creatures and studied them no use pete he muttered they're not ants there's no division of head thorax and abdomen they're eight-legged and cephalothoracic more like arachnids his startled surprise was fading under the prod of scientific curiosity funny thing pete the legs and shells seem to be composed of the same substance as the thing they came from look storm dropped his oar and came forward the boat rocked a little to his shift of weight a faint humming came from the thing on the seat catching his attention but hammond intent on one of the small creatures he was about to pick up did not notice not until pete's hoarse shout jerked him away look out frank that tube hammond straightened up to face his friend but pete storm had vanished as if he had never been between hammond and where storm had been was the thing on the seat the humming emanating from it now was distinctly audible and ominous a shining tube mounted in a turret had appeared in one of the openings the tube was swinging around lining itself on hammond the dazed chemist did not think he reacted instinctively knowing somehow that that tube was related to storm's disappearance he twisted violently and tried to dive over the boat's side something halted him in the act he felt a strange numbness wrap itself about him and a cold like nothing he had ever experienced penetrated to his very vitals then he felt himself falling as if through an endless blackness the darkness faded slowly he felt his feet jar on solid ground and the terrible cold left him but for long moments frank hammond stood rigid his dazed mind trying to accept the strange world he had fallen into the landscape about him was maroon in color irregular ridges and gullies of apparently molten stone hemmed him in off to his left he could see a huge bubbly pit 
that reminded him of fumaroles he had seen in the national yellowstone park far in the distance to his right and left maroon cliffs towered into blue mists hammond stared at the weird scene under him he could feel the slow rise and sway of the entire land as if it were unstable rocking in space for the first few moments hammond thought he was dreaming he must have been rendered unconscious by the strange thing on the boat soon he would awaken but the slightly swaying maroon landscape persisted hammond looked down at his nearly naked bronzed body he hadn't changed he took a few tentative steps toward the bubbly pit and the sudden realization that all this was real sickened him where was he what had happened to him and storm a harsh metallic rasp answered him hammond whirled topping one of the far ridges appeared an eight-legged monster of gigantic size it was without head or tail its unsegmented body was an iridescent blue and shaped like a giant pumpkin seed the thing flashed menacingly in the bright light of a sun that was but a huge blur in the misty sky it headed for hammond with incredible speed a huge foreleg stretching out in readiness hammond wasted no time in speculation his dazed mind reached but one impulse flight turning he ran for the nearest gully he went down in a half scramble and ran along it the walls looming over his head but his huge pursuer gained on him he could hear the metallic rattle of those flashing legs close behind him despair gripped the young chemist as he scrambled out of the gully and ran up the nearest ridge the landscape ahead of him was dipping down as he ran seemingly being tilted by his weight the thought came back to hammond that this must be a nightmare the eight-legged colossal thing that pursued him was exactly like the tiny ant-like creatures that had swarmed out of the strange catch he had pulled onto the crawfish but a few hours ago or was it a few hours he didn't know he no longer knew anything grim-faced his breath beginning to come in gasps he slid down a steep maroon bank and raced along the shadowed cut that gradually deepened it was a hopeless flight behind him the clattering monster came running along the top of the ravine which was too narrow to allow it to enter the steep walled cut suddenly ended the sides were steep and smooth a perfect cul-de-sac hammond turned his brown fists clenched the walls hemming him in were perhaps fifteen feet above his head the metal monster halted on the rim a strange light blinked on in the nose of that creature or perhaps mechanism it probed down at him spotlighting him a giant foreleg ending in a formidable pair of forceps reached down along the light beam for him the focusing light swinging along the opposite wall before steadying on hammond 
had revealed to the desperate research chemist a transverse fissure barely wide enough to admit him. Hammond took the chance. The giant claw was but a foot above his head when he twisted, sprang away from the wall. The forcep jerked, swinging after him. Hammond beat it to the fissure by a foot. He didn't stop. He kept running, looking back over his shoulder to see if the monster was following. He didn't notice that the fissure ended abruptly in space, not until he suddenly felt himself treading empty air. Then he began to fall, turning slowly, like a slow-motion diver in the newsreels. He fell a long way. In terms of feet, as he judged it, the drop was incredible. Below him, a huge mass loomed out of a brown, heaving sea. Above him, he saw it once, as he faced upward in his turning fall, he glimpsed what was a gigantic span of maroon earth, hundreds of feet thick, that was supported by the huge maroon cliffs at either side. It was from that span he had fallen. A strange, numbing thought came to him. Then, so incredible in its implications, he discarded it. But it persisted, kept tapping at the back of his mind. He was still in the crawfish. The thought was fantastic. Yet it was less incredible than if it were not true. The turreted tube, evidently, had sprayed an invisible ray that had so changed him in size that the ant-like things he had been about to examine now loomed like colossi over him. The ridges and gullies and fumaroles were brush marks and paint bubbles in the maroon paint of the seat, and the towering cliffs were the boat's sides. The high span from which he was falling must be nothing less than the boat's seat, and the huge elliptical landmass toward which he was falling must be he landed then the substance beneath his feet was soft spongy it broke his fall around him was a momentary red glow as of the sun shining through a filter that blocked out all waves above the red band he passed through slimy pools within the huge mass and momentary revulsion gripped him then he emerged out into brief daylight, riding a huge disk to the brown heaving sea. He hit with a splash. Fathoms deep to him, he went directly to the bottom, as if he were composed of a substance many times heavier than lead. And he remained on the bottom. Not even his instinctive attempt to swim upward could lift him to the surface. The ironic thought hit him then as death stared at him with grinning face. The huge mass through which he had plunged must have been the body of one of the bluefish they had caught. Evidently, though incredibly reduced in size, his weight in relation to the earth's pull was still 180 pounds, and the brown heaving sea at the bottom of which he now rested was merely the bilgewater of the crawfish and in the next minute or two frank hammond was going to drown in it he turned instinctively and ran for the boat's side again 
he felt the boat tip to his unbalanced weight overhead the bilge water rushed to lap high against his side there was danger that his weight would so tip the skiff that it would ship water from the sound but he had to chance it or drown where he stood his lungs were nearly bursting when he came upon the dark gigantic loom of the boat side and strangely at this moment the steep slant of the floor began to level the bilge water washed back from the side the thought came to hammond then that pete storm must be running for the opposite side of the boat instinctively realizing the need to keep this strange world on an even keel lungs bursting hammond started the climb up the dark wall like some tiny mite almost invisible to the naked eye hammond finally emerged from the bilge water aching lungs drew in great draughts of clean air spent still somewhat dazed by the incredible truth he did not notice the eight-legged colossus that came down along the cliff toward him not until it loomed over him and a giant claw reached down for him did he become aware of it and then it was too late he gasped tried to dodge a giant metal forcep grasped him about the middle and with quick deft motions another claw-like appendage clipped a small parachute-like metal harness over his shoulders then the first forcep lifted him easily and drew him up to the metal monster where a round port dilated open and he was thrust inside the huge claw withdrew and the port closed hammond blinked his eyes he was in a big room the ceiling of which was transparent letting in a subdued light ringing him in a circle too deep were warriors of an ancient era amazons complete to breastplates and oval shields cinchers and sandals lithe beautiful yet erect and disciplined they watched him as a trainer watches a jungle cat on its first day in the arena hammond waited the thought came to him now that these were very modern amazons for besides the shield they carried a weapon that closely resembled a modern rifle and on their shoulders each carried an identical parachute-like contrivance similar to the one fastened on hammond the young chemist took a deep breath he said what's the idea girls this some kind of new game the sound of his voice seemed to startle them a golden-haired warrior perhaps a minor officer for she wore a green armlet made a short quick gesture the ringing warriors closed in on hammond instinct moved in the young chemist's arms the instinct to fight to win free of this strange experience he could not understand but crippling that instinct were the habits of civilization he couldn't bring himself to hit these girls warriors or no yet he tried to win free he pushed the first two off their feet whirled and bucked the rest of the line with his shoulders they parted under his assault but with disciplined movement the others closed in and fairly smothered him under them he felt metal clasps about his arms and legs and suddenly he was unable to struggle to heave free 
of the pinning mass. Panting, his face grinned, he subsided. The Amazons reformed ranks. He was left with arms and legs chained in a manner when on his feet to take short steps forward. The officer with the green armband gestured again and gave with a verbal order. Her voice was musical, in a tongue entirely alien to Hammond. Two warriors marched forward, bent, helped Hammond to his feet. The officer took hold of the free length of blue chain and started to walk Hammond toward the far end of the big room. Hammond followed. Behind him the two warriors kept pace, rifle-like weapons held ready. A door dilated open in the wall, and Hammond found himself in a long, softly lighted runway. He was marched along this to another door, and motioned within. The door closed behind him. It was a small room, bare and blank on three sides, save for a number of iron hand-grips on the walls. The fourth wall was transparent. Hammond shuffled to it. At the same moment the floor under him pitched and rolled, and the clank of machinery rumbled through the iron monster. He grasped the nearest hand-grip and clung. Looking out through the transparent wall, he could see that the monster tank, for now he guessed the eight-legged ant-like thing to be, was climbing up the boat side to the seat. The tank leveled off. Above him towered the outlines of big ones. Scores of monster tanks were climbing back up the parent side, to disappear in as many openings. The tank, which held Hammond, moved steadily, nosed into its compartment. The door closed after them. The tank rumbled on across the large, dimly lighted room, more like some enormous storage garage, for Hammond could glimpse the bulks of dozens of huge tanks along the far walls, and in one corner he saw several of what resembled fast, ultra-streamlined, all-metal planes. The tank came to a halt. The door of Hammond's cell opened and the officer, with the two guards, came in. Hammond was motioned to follow her out. He was led out of the tank, which was immediately maneuvered into its niche among the vague bulks along the wall. A door dilated open at the officer's approach, and they passed through it into another long, green-lighted runway. They went along this for some distance, then turned into another room, as huge as the colossal garage into which the tank had entered. Thousands of the wiry Amazons were swarming in through a hundred doorways to this room. Evidently, they were members of the expedition which had been sent to locate and capture him, and which must have consisted of nearly a hundred of the strange, ambulatory war tanks. The Amazon officer led him across this huge room which reminded Hammond of a railway or bus terminal, and into another corridor. It was then that the hugeness of the big one became evident to Hammond. They marched through a number of huge rooms, climbed three spiral ramps, and popped into a half-dozen traverse corridors. And only on these upper levels, in rooms that held banks of whirring machinery, 
did Hammond see the males. They carried no weapons. They all wore white, collarless, crew-neck garments that resembled smocks, which came down to their knees. They sported bearded chins and jowls, but smooth-shaven upper lips. The beards were all trimmed to sharp points, and they looked alike as stenciled copies. But here and there among them were some with remarkable physical characteristics. Each of these occasional individuals had a tremendously large left arm, fully as big as one of his legs. It was carried crooked at the elbow, with the forearm laid horizontally in front of him. The right arm, on the contrary, was spindly and underdeveloped. These males had thin, scraggy beards, and strange, dull eyes that followed Hammond as he was marched past. If the other males noticed him, they gave no sign. They seemed completely subordinate to this huge craft. The spiral ramps kept leading upward. Finally they reached a corridor with a transparent ceiling, and Hammond realized that he was now at the top of the strange craft. A moment later he was led before a door at either side of which stood a stiff Amazon guard. The guard saluted the officer by raising the right hand to the heart. Then they stepped aside. The officer stared at the closed door. Her forehead furrowed slightly. Then she nodded. Turning, she removed the shackles from Hammond, stepped back. The door dilated open. The officer made a sharp, unmistakable gesture with her right hand, and the armed guard took a solid step forward. Hammond shrugged. Ducking a little to clear the top of the doorway, he stepped inside. Across the well-lighted room, close to the transparent prow of the ship, was a huge metal desk. Papers and small charts lay scattered upon it, but Hammond's eyes scarcely noticed. He stopped, just within the room, the door closing silently behind him. Then he took a deep breath and grinned. Now I know I must be dreaming. The girl behind the desk did not smile. She looked at him, solidly. Then a strange, quick fire leapt across her startled, beautiful face. She lowered her gaze abruptly, and her hands stiffened on the desk. She rose, and when she looked again at Hammond, there was a hardness, a piercing penetration in her sea-green eyes that seemed to probe like a surgeon's scalpel into Hammond's very brain. A fire seemed to spread quickly through his mind, as though long dormant cells were stirring, growing to awareness. And with it, impacting strangely on his ears, the girl spoke, her voice low and musical. Earthman, your thoughts are unpleasant to me. I, Gina, commander of this spacecraft, Vardar Three, with a million warriors at my disposal, am not for you. Hammond's grin changed to a startled gape. Confusion moiled in his brain. How had she known what he was thinking? And where did she learn English? She spoke it like an American. The girl smiled as if hearing his confusion. She was a tall, lissome girl, a corn-yellow blonde of remarkable beauty. But there was an imperiousness in her manner, a quiet dignity, 
to her regard, a grace to her movements that set her above the Amazons that had captured Hammond. That she was a warrior also, albeit a commanding officer of this strange craft, was evident by her attire, which was the same as that of the other female fighters. On a small table to her left was a shield, differing from the plain blue of the others by a single glowing white star in its center. With it reposed one of the rifle-like weapons. On her left arm she wore a metal band, like that of the minor officer that had escorted Hammond here. But this band was of gold, and it held the same symbol of high status, the single white star of glowing stone that writhed with the strange white fire. Hammond took control of his confused thoughts. He said, I'm sorry if I've offended you, Gina, but I can't control my thoughts, and they were sincere. His handsome face lighted with his quick, infectious grin. You are very beautiful and very desirable. The quick fire leapt across the girl's face again, and in Hammond's mind there suddenly beat a tumultuous surge of emotions other than his own. Then the girl's face went somber, and the strange surge in Hammond abruptly ceased. "'You are a very impetuous young barbarian,' she said coldly, "'but perhaps your uncouthness can be excused. You will indeed prove an interesting specimen to present to Aliya, the queen-mother.' Hammond frowned. He had almost forgotten the utter strangeness of the entire experience. But it came back to him now, and with it the clamor for explanation. The girl read his thoughts. I, Gina, am not of earth, nor did I, before you entered this room, know your language, or know that your people called this planet Earth, and the planet from which I come, Mars. All this, and as much of Earth and your civilization as you know, I have probed from your mind while you stood there. She came around the desk, smiling now. Your thoughts are confused. You do not really believe. Mars? Impossible. No ship has yet been constructed that can negotiate the airless void of space. No Earthian craft, she emphasized. But we of Mars have. Hammond looked about him, out through the transparent hull wall to the far, low, maroon cliffs that he knew were the boat sides. He shrugged. Fantastic or no, this was the reality, and with a true scientist's adaptable mind, he accepted it. How is it, then, he questioned calmly, that the warriors that captured me did not learn my language, nor read my thoughts? Gina's imperial features held dignity. I am a commander, she answered, which means that I am a thought master which means that I am a thorough master of that which your scientists call ESP, extrasensory perception, as well as its opposite, which they have not yet recognized, but which they might call EST, extrasensory transmission. It takes a certain type of personality even on Mars, and years of training, 
to attune to the power to perceive what is in others' minds, plus the power to transmit to them, selectively, and at will, that which I wish them to know, understand, or obey. Hammond relaxed, his keen mind enjoying itself. Then you are not speaking to me in American? Yet to me it seems you are talking my language. Gina's eyes quickened. Precisely. I am speaking the language of the mind. Your mind interprets what I say in the phonetic symbols you call American, due to speech habits, just as it interprets such phonetic symbols as thoughts and ideas. If you spoke another language, the written symbols and sounds conjured up by your mind would be different. But the thoughts and ideas conveyed would be the same. Hammond frowned. Then, if you and your people use only the language of the mind, how does it happen that I heard spoken words which I did not understand? I did not say we use only the language of the mind. We have our own phonetic symbols. In fact, I am talking audibly to you now. When you first entered, I probed your mind and put you in rapport, as you might call it, not only with our mind language, but with our thought symbols, so you now reinterpret both as your own language. Hammond shook his head. But I still speak in American. No, you are only thinking in American. You are now vocalizing in our language as naturally as if you were speaking your tongue. Here, look at this chart. Hammond glanced at the chart she held before him. It seemed written in English, though the ideas conveyed were somewhat startling and foreign, having to do with the intricate calculations of space travel. Yet Hammond recalled that only a few moments before they had been in strange and unintelligible symbols. He nodded slowly, a little awed. You have advanced far on Mars, and here on Earth we smugly pride ourselves on our knowledge, on a civilization that even now is tearing itself to shreds. Surely you on Mars, with your advanced science, have succeeded in founding a better and more peaceful world. The girl's eyes clouded, and for a moment her thought control slipped. Hammond had a wandering sensation of fear and anxiety. We have come far, Earthman, she nodded. Evolution seems to have started from the same base on Mars, and taken the same general course as that of Earth. With variations, of course. We, the Metaphyrons, the mammals of Mars, have achieved to high civilization. Our cities are united and at peace among ourselves. Our science has wrought wondrous changes. We have crossed space and we have harnessed as well as condensed the atom. On Mars we are of normal size, which is to say we average about the size and weight of you Americans. This spaceship, those tanks, our weapons, all weigh and bulk accordingly. But for space travel, and for certain doubtful ventures, we have condensed the atoms in our body, and that of this craft, and all our weapons, without changing their mass or qualitative characteristics. The electrical particles are all there, 
and in precisely the same proportion but in each atom the particles are moved closer together moving in smaller orbits hammond nodded then i still weigh one hundred and eighty pounds you did until your weight was reduced by the degravitation strap on your back remove it and your body without changing size will once more attract and be attracted by your planet sufficient to weigh one hundred and eighty pounds this ship small as it no doubt appeared to you and your companion weighs countless tons were it not for the giant degravitator in the central room it would have plummeted down to the ocean's depths hammond nodded slowly with such science and at peace among yourselves you must be supreme on your planet and yet his gaze shifted to the shield and weapon on the small table you seem a warrior people gina's face clouded life is a struggle earthman forever and beyond perhaps we the metaphorons have achieved to unity and peace but on mars evolution took two parallel paths that which culminated in the metaphorons my people arising as on earth from the lowly protozoa and with it keeping pace that of the crustaceans culminating in the opposite life form on mars the cetaphorons for centuries now they have fought us for mastery of the planet somewhat related to your arachnidia their later evolution has been continuously anthropomorphic as they strove to imitate us in everything even in body shape their motives the girl smiled bleakly the ancient motives of life to enslave us to be dominant on the planet to infuse our blood with their own in order to speed up their anthropomorphic evolution and finally to use as food those of us not suitable for slaves or to bear their hybrid progeny you can see why the very thought of them is repugnant to us why every female bears arms from infancy and why we hope to find aid from the females here on earth in our fight to crush the cetaphorons hammond nodded then the metaphoron males don't bear arms bear arms gina smiled the males attend to our machinery take care of the incubators and watch our young until they are able to take care of themselves but fight she shook her head as if the idea were strange and almost laughable hammond grins things are somewhat changed around on earth gina women do plenty of scrapping here of course and there's some who would insist they have it over the males most of the time in domestic life but the really big blow-offs like the ones going on in europe and in asia they're strictly for males the girl commander shrugged dubiously men are too phlegmatic to make good fighters she broke off caught by a warning red signal that suddenly flashed to life on the complicated instrument panel to the left of the desk for the space of several seconds she concentrated her pretty brow slightly furrowed when she turned to hammond there was a worried frown in her eyes 
My auto detector indicates the proximity of a strange spaceship. Its commander does not answer my telepathic inquiries. Something is definitely wrong. I must place my sub-officers on alert. Also, Ardine, my division commander, who is conducting the search for your friend Peter Storm. Once more she concentrated on the issuance of telepathic orders. The floor suddenly lurched violently beneath them. Hammond, thrown off balance, went down to his hands. He twisted erect, supple as a cat, and reached out a supporting arm for Gina, who had been thrown against the desk. A strange thrill tingled through him at the softness of her. The girl was half-turned, facing the transparent prow wall. She said, Gogoth, the Cetaphon King. There was fear in her, momentarily. Then she stiffened, her brow furrowing in telepathic concentration, evidently issuing orders to the defensive posts of the Vandar Three. Hammond glanced over her shoulder, saw that a second craft exactly like the one he was in had alighted on the boat seat beside them. Holes were already dilating open in the gleaming side. Ugly muzzles, huge and ominous to Hammond's changed perspective, thrust through these holes. A moment later the flash and roar of heavy artillery shattered the quiet. At the same time, hundreds of the eight-legged war tanks swarmed out of the holes in the lower part of the space cruiser some of these charged toward the vendor three and were immediately met in combat by the divisions gina had ordered out to assist sub-commander ardina in her search for peter storm others scuttled off to engage the separate scouters gina seemed to have forgotten hammond she watched the heavy electronic artillery from the hostile war cruiser, her mind sending telepathic command after command to the various sections of the ship. The Vandar's own artillery was firing, but spasmodically, as if trouble was aboard. Gina's brow furrowed. Hammond watched the strange battle. The ambulant tanks, he saw, were not only fighting with similar guns of light caliber, but were engaging each other with their claw-like feet, like crustaceans. The guns did not fire projectiles, but flashes of electronic force which resembled lightning. The armor of the spaceship held under the primary blasts, but was eroded by them, and repeated bolts striking the same spot would eventually break through. The quick flame of combat surged through Hammond as he watched. Why don't you maneuver the ship? he shouted, forgetting the girl commander could read his thoughts. Circle over them. Come down on them from some blind spot. You can't win in this position. They've got more guns. The girl faced him, as if suddenly aware he was by her side. Her features were white, and there was strain in her, in her flashing eyes. I can't, she replied. There were traitors among the men in my crew, Sedephrons disguised as hybrids. They have seized the control room and wrecked many of our big guns. We've lost. No, cried Hammond roughly, the control room. Maybe we can still take over, 
if there's not too many of them. If they haven't wrecked the driving mechanism, we might still get away. Where is it, Gina? The girl looked at him strangely. The males of Earth are indeed a different breed, she commented. Then, come, perhaps we have a chance. She gathered up her shield and electronic rifle and headed for what seemed a blank wall. Hammond followed. A door suddenly dilated open before Gina, and they passed through, hurried down a short, deserted ramp that spiraled downward for about a hundred feet. It ended in an open doorway. Beyond, in the midst of electronic crackle and strange battle sounds, a dozen hybrids were holding the control room against a company of Amazons trying to force their way in from another doorway across the room. Two of Gina's operators were on the floor, evidently dead. Three others struggled in the grip of the scraggy beards, huge-armed, fifth-column hybrids. Other hybrids were smashing the delicate controls. These saw Gina and Hammond first. They swung around, reached for electronic rifles. Gina succeeded in killing two of them. Hammond, closing in quickly behind her, noticed that the rifles were fired not from the shoulder, but held with the stock beneath the arm, and maneuvered with one hand while the shield was held with the other. Before she could fire again, Gina became the target of two of the traitors. She caught a flash from one rifle on her shield, but could not raise it in time to ward off the other. The electronic bolt caught her squarely on the helmet. With a muffled growl, Hammond charged. The scraggy, bearded traitor fired hurriedly, evidently disconcerted by the sight of a bronzed, muscled male diving at him. The blast seared lightly across Hammond's back muscles. Then his hurtling body smashed into his opponent, hurtling him down. He swore monotonously, viciously, clubbed with savage fists at the bearded, screaming face. His victim screamed for aid. At the next instant, a wave of fighting Amazons, evidently spurred to frenzy by the sight of their fallen leader, surged forward, blasting into the room. Hammond clung to the struggling saboteur he had floored. The Sedephron had lost rifle and shield, and was gouging at Hammond's eyes with the fingers of his dwarfed right hand. The other, huge and leg-like, was locked behind the chemist's neck in a bone-crushing grip. Hammond's shoulder muscles writhed. He thrust his right hand up to the scraggly bearded chin. To his surprise, not only the chin, but the whole face came away, revealing another beneath it. A hideous, crab-like face with popping eyes that stood out on stalks. It was covered with green, chitinous armor. Startled, the Sedephron fifth columnist relaxed its grip on his neck. Hammond wrenched free, his hand clamped down on the huge arm. The Sedephron surged back, leaving the artificial limb in the chemist's hand. A huge toothed claw was revealed. The Sedephron surged in, reaching for Hammond. The Earthman twisted, a faint sneer writhing his lips. The Sedephron was unbelievably clumsy. Hammond caught the descending claw and gave a sharp, quick twist. The entire limb came off in his hands, broken cleanly at the shoulder joint. 
swinging the heavy limb in a swift moulinette the earthman brought it down with crushing force beneath the popping eyes of his adversary it crashed through the chitinous skull as if it were an eggshell hammond whirled back to the fallen girl commander bent by her limp body her fallen rifle caught his eye and he reached for it sensing the swift swirl of battle swing toward him his fingers fell short a numbing pain lashed through his head bringing a quick blackness consciousness returned slowly to hammond he felt himself being carried but it was the sharp barked order that lingered in his mind that seemed to rift the blackness that shrouded his aching brain his eyes opened he found himself looking up into the hideous crab-like face of the sidiferon who carried him by the shoulders the sharp imperious voice came again halting hammond's carriers the young chemist was put on his feet flanked immediately by a half dozen sidiferons with menacing electronic rifles hammond stiffened he was back at gina's big observation and chart room a horde of armed sidiferons filled the room drawn up in stiff military array behind the metal desk sat a huge manlike crustacean deep green in color an enormous toothed claw rested before him on the scattered flight charts the crab-like mouth moved constantly words drummed against hammond's ear in a language he strangely understood bring in the other earth specimen vard and the metrophon subcommander ardina hammond turned only then did he see gina flanked by a sidiferon guard facing the hideous crustacean behind the desk their eyes met and a warm surge of thankfulness enveloped hammond thank god gina he thought forcefully you're unharmed meteor men of mars by harry cord and otis aldebert klein end of part one